Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Hi, this is Elizabeth Bachman. I'm a junior fellow at First Things, and I typically edit these podcasts. But today, I will be interviewing Mark. Mark has authored many things, but today we will be talking about his new book, The Dumbest Generation Grows Up from Stupefied Youth to Dangerous Adults, which is a sequel to his The Dumbest Generation. Now, Mark, I suspect that I may be a member of your dumbest generation. So to start out, why don't you tell us who this dumbest generation is and what makes them so dumb? <laughs> they are the ones born between roughly 1983-84 to 1999-2000. They were the millennials. And they're called the millennials because they're, they're coming to age in the turn, of the turn of the millennium. And they were understood to be the digital natives. The first, the first generation that grew up with these tools you know, in, in, in their infancy. And it was going to change them. And it was going to change them for the good. This was the, the hype that we heard in 05, 06, 07, when Web 2.0 was really taking off. And the evidence for it was, well, the millennials are so good with the tools. They're the innovators. They're the digital natives, the early adopters. They were the pioneers with social media, doing things on Wikipedia and, and chat rooms and the, the gaming that they were doing. And this was tallied with their, their ambitions, their intellectual ambitions. They were going to college in record numbers. They, helped, they were activists, getting involved in politics. They really came out for Barack Obama and helped get him elected. They went two to one for Obama. And that was taken as a historic commitment to our first African-American president. So they had all the great tolerant attitudes and, and the progressive attitudes. And we got TV shows even about them. 16 Minutes did an episode called here come the millennials, and they're going to transform the workplace, and they're going to transform marketing. They have a lot of spending money themselves, and they interact all the time. They live yeah. in this 24-7 world of, of peer, peer pressure and, and peer culture. I came along and said, and a few of other, uh, other people said, no, this is awful. It is terrible that a 15-year-old can walk around with 250 photos of himself in his pocket. Uh, it is terrible sending 4,000 text messages a month. Now, this didn't apply to all of them. Your your opening question, Elizabeth, was, uh, you know, I'm I'm a member of the dumbest generation. Well, that, that's a silver lining for you because we hired you. Uh, you went to Hillsdale. You're a reader. You're a thinker. You are a writer. You edit these podcasts and do a great job for for us. <laughs> and and remember, uh, it's a competitive world out there. As I said to my students, I, I just retired last year, but as, as I used to say to my students, uh, you know, you guys all want to be, you, you all, you're friends, you know, you're on mm -hmm. Facebook and you, you're, you're, 
you're, you're Instagramming back and forth with all your friends. I want all of you in class here to look at one another and say, we're not friends. We're competitors. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there are only so many med school slots that are out there. That right. internship is going to have 50 people applying for it and only one person is going to get hired. So the worse your peers are, Elizabeth, when it comes to reading books, knowing some history, uh, being able to discuss politics intelligently, to, to read good newspapers, to watch good good television and, and be familiar with the great movies and the great stories and better music, you're going to look But Your professors are going to love you. Your bosses are, are going to love you. So it's uh, uh, the dumbest generation is, is very good for the top 10% of, of your generation. So th there you are. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> Although we need to bring the others along with us, I think. Well, um, it, it, that's actually a good point because one of the great problems in our society today is there is such a difference between the elite in America, you know, the top, the top 10%, and then the next 50%. And when we look at things like homework time, uh, TV time, uh, reading achievement, then what we see is when you get outside that top 10 to 15%, things go down rapidly. And mm -hmm. a democracy doesn't work very well when you've got such an isolated leadership, when you, when you, don't, when you don't have actually a very involved, active, and, and more or less upright and informed middle class. And, and mm -hmm. what we're seeing today is more and more of the decisions of our society being contained within a very small, small group of people. Yeah. Yeah, and in the book, you really point point that that starts that development into an upright, informed person starts at a very young age. It starts with reading as a kid, and which is the one thing that you say that the dumbest generation, millennials, didn't do and still aren't doing. I, I worked at the National Endowment for the Arts for, for three years, 2003 to 2005. I was a low-level political appointment at the National Endowment for the Arts uh, under Dana Joya. And one of the things we did uh, in the research office that I, that I headed, uh, research and education for, for a time, was uh, surveys of how much people are involved in the arts. It was a gigantic survey we would do the Census Bureau every 10 years. And we got the results in, in 2002, and it was stunning what we saw in literary reading. We, could add, we, we, we asked people about how much they have read novels, poems, plays, fiction, short stories. And the drop-off from 1992 to 2002 in terms of how much literary reading young people do, 18 to 24-year-olds, was it was off the cliff. I mean, it went 17 percentage points. It, it, it went down in those 10 years. And, and so Dana asked me to develop a separate report and do a kind of you know, publicity campaign, traveling around the country. I got, I got private money. To, to fund me to go to conferences, deliver the results. And the main, the clear factor here was the way in which electronic tools had invaded kids' lives in, in those 10 years. With, with the games, you know, the websites, the emails, social media was just beginning at that time. And that this was one of the things that, that concerned me, that made me write the Dumbest Generation book, the loss of a reading habit, the loss of that bookish kid, the loss of parents who would sit in bed with their kids at night from a very early age and read, read, 
read is fundamental mm-hmm. to the development of, of kids. Mm-hmm. And in the recent book, I look at the millennials to see as they have entered into middle age, have their reading habits improved? No. They, they, they've got five hours of leisure time per day and they spend seven minutes of that leisure time reading. They haven't boosted their reading habit one bit from where they were when they were 18 years of age. And this is from Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, uh, data coming through. And, and so, well, come on, you guys. If you don't build the reading habit in the teenage years, if you don't sustain it, then actually the chances are it's not going to come up in, in middle age, even when one would think that one would become more informed about politics, about the world, about the past, about the future, what, what, what is going on in, in the arts. No, the curiosity is not there. The millennials haven't improved their reading. So can you talk a little bit about why reading is so important and what's happening in your mind psychologically and even neurologically you talk about in the book when you become deeply engrossed in a piece of literature that has complex characters? When you read, you've got to figure out what's going on through the characters' heads. You gotta, you gotta say to yourself, okay, what, 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 this is a bad guy. What's he about? You can't read the book. You can't know what's going on. You can't imagine, see that character's facial expressions without developing cognitive empathy. And the thing I, I focus on in the new book is what reading does in a particular aptitude that one has called cognitive empathy. Cognitive empathy. Now, the word empathy sounds touchy-feely, but that's not what what psychologists mean when they talk about cognitive empathy. It's not sympathy. Cognitive empathy is when you are able to enter into the mind of another and imagine what is going on. That could be entering the mind of a villain. You have to sniff out motive. Mixed motive. You got to get the feelings down. How that other mind experiences the world. And... That's, that's part of wisdom, right? And that's part of being a citizen in an open society as well. And one of the train, best trainings for that, it turns out, is reading. And the interesting thing is neurological research proves that this is not just a, an imaginative, willful action. When you read, for instance, in, in one study that I cite in the book, when you read Anna Karenina, jump in front of that train. The motor areas in the brain that operate your legs when your legs jump, they light up a little bit. Wow. In other words, you you actually experience it vicariously, even down to the neurological level. You reproduce what is happening. And this this actually is something that develops, right? One, One can, one can, teach the brain. The brain is a pretty malleable, it's a lot more malleable than we used to think. It will change as you change your perceptual habits, the perceptions that come into your head. You read a lot, you develop the cognitive empathy. It's like a muscle. It grows like memorization as well. The more you memorize things, the stronger your memory becomes. There's one reason why I always make my students memorize poetry and I recite them to the class. Uh, it was brutal. They hated it, but I, I, that only made me do it more. So, the uh, the reading is as one man, uh, one you know, friend of mine uh, put it in in the book in conversation. With him, he says, "A good novel is very good psychology." 
when you read about these characters, you got to get into other people's heads. And it's, it's good practice for life in an open society where you got to relate to people who are a lot different from you. Mm-hmm. The, the millennials not doing that, but instead enveloping themselves in youth world, peer world, they, they, they go out into the workplace and they, they got to work with people who are 25 years older than they are. They can't relate. Right? They're yeah. not used to it. They don't, they don't have the habit of it. They've been relating to people who already are like themselves. Well, guess what? Your, your 45-year-old coworker doesn't care what happened to you over the weekend. Not interested. And, and that's not a bad thing, right? Uh, you've got to find other grounds for interaction. And that's why I tell read a newspaper. Read a newspaper for three months straight. You're going to become a more interesting person. You'll have more to say. You'll be there at the table with three 50-year-olds, and, and you'll be able to contribute something. That's what's going to happen. Well, that, that wasn't the, the millennial habit, the reading habit. Uh, and, and so they, they don't know how. And they haven't le- they're still not learning how. They want to reproduce the TV show Friends from the 90s, that, that, that insufferable group of, of 30-year-olds still <laughs> pretending they're 19. Acting like children. And, yeah, yeah. And it's fun. They're having fun. And they care because they're friends. You know, friends are very, very <laughs> important. And so millennials, you know, one of the things that we see now, that they're, they're grown up, 33 years old. They are marrying and having children at a much lower race than the rate than the boomers did. Uh, by age 40, one third of millennial men will never have married. And, and men have no wow. plans ever to get married. That's a big drop. Uh, it's actually a population problem uh, when, when we see that kind of trend. They also, uh, as for all of their optimism and, and uh, their, their futuristic outlook, uh, they actually suffer higher rates of depression and mm-hmm. higher rates of anxiety, narcissism. And, and Elizabeth, who would have thought that they would become narcissists when we handed them a tool that allowed them to take a picture of the food they're about to eat 10 seconds later? Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. So, so what is academia's role in this? More people are going to college than ever before. You'd think that they yeah. would be reading at least once they get to college, but it seems like students are just demanding that their curriculums be more diverse and that you know having a core curriculum is part of the cultural hegemony. And the teachers, the professors are just caving in and they're recreating their curriculum around students' desires. So what is this kind of new way of learning that's rising up around the flexible content? And, and is, it, is it helping? Do students even like it? <laughs> we, we, we dropped the ball. I mean, the boomers, the mentors. You know, one of the chapters in the first book was called The Betrayal of the Mentors. The first sentence of this book is, what have we done to them? And I mean anyone in a supervisory capacity with the young who 
first of all, let them dive into their tools and, and be part of Youth World 24-7. And none of them wanted to say, hey, knock it off, you know, close that phone, read a book, learn some history. Who won the Civil <laughs> War? Uh, because, you know, the boomers, my generation, they didn't want to be an old curmudgeon, old grouch, get off my lawn <laughs> types. You know, they didn't want to be like the, 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 the grown-ups that they rebelled against in the 60s. And so they, they you know, you know I, I, could either, I could either plunge into it and, and start yelling, get off my lawn. Or, or I could, I could come to class uh, on, on that September after the summer was over, sporting a, a ponytail and an earring. So I'm, I'm down with the kids, and I, I took the former route, and happily so, because that's our duty. It's our duty to be the stern elder for the young. And you, you talked about the education model, the more diversity in education. No, we need to be more prescriptive about exactly what the young need to learn the way we used to. Uh, we shouldn't have the child-centered uh, education going on. Uh, the teacher who says, you know, I really learn more from my students than they learn from me, ought to be fired uh, for incompetence, uh, shouldn't be able to give given a paycheck. And we need to present, we, see, see Elizabeth, you, know, you went to Hillsdale again, you're, you're different. You're, that's a different profile, but most of, most people your age didn't go to college or even went through high school, being told of the big picture. The big picture being, uh, you're studying the sciences, you're getting certain skills, but there is knowledge in the areas of the arts, of history, literature, architecture, philosophy, religion, the humanistic fields of the past that is great and grand and is filled with sublimity and beauty. There are heroic dimensions out there. Sometimes they are villainous heroic dimensions. Often they are matters of great love stories and betrayal. Uh, you've got monuments of architecture and sculpture and painting and music, and it's all waiting for you. You are stepping into a lineage of civilization that is yours to claim. You've got the last five minutes of Beethoven's Fifth. You've got the first mm. 10 minutes of Wagner's Tristan. You, you have the, the, the Mona Lisa and the Raft of the Medusa. You've, you've got Shiloh and Gettysburg. Uh, you, you have Augustine uh, in that pear orchard uh, being a naughty boy. You've got so <laughs> much here that you live in the shadow of, that is great. You, there is an august sweep of civilization that preceded you, and it, become, it can become part of you. We don't do that. We don't let them know. When we talk about the, the American past, we, 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 don't, we don't talk about those, those uh, uh, grand speeches by Daniel Webster and... Booker T. Washington, we, we, we talk about slavery and Jim Crow and Manzanar and Wounded Knee and, and, and all the rest. Uh, America as, a, as an inheritance of, of shame and guilt. That's not good for the young. They need to feel proud of their country. 
prime day, you know, a good country makes them feel gratitude, and gratitude's a good feeling. Resentment's not a good feeling. Uh, mm-hmm. And but but we we didn't give them that. We know you know the nuns phenomenon. The 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 young people who say they're not religious, they don't belong to any religion. Some of them are spiritual. They they they'll push that idea, but they don't have any organized practice of religion. They don't have any organized prayer. They don't go to church or temple or, or, or whatever. We didn't give them that kind of God. We didn't give them family. And we know that because they're not forming families of their own and they're not looking forward to doing so. And again, we're talking about rates here at nearly the rate that previous generations did. We didn't give them the great stories and heroes and role models, the great poems and plays and, and operas. They don't have that. And so mm-hmm. what did we give them? Oh, we gave them consumer fun. We told them achieve, achieve, which meant, you know, doing doing well on your SATs and then your and then your GRE exams and going to graduate school or into the white collar professions. That was our sense of growth. No moral development, no aesthetic development there. And now they're 33 and they're unhappy because life has hit them and they don't have the equipment to manage the difficulties. If they had the great rejections of the past, you know, Odysseus and Calypso and, 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 and Dido and Aeneas, uh, that might give them, again, some kind of background reservoir for managing their own disappointments in love. Uh, if, if we gave them great speeches, saw eloquence in action, uh, maybe they wouldn't say like, 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 like all the time <laughs> in, in every sentence. And, it's, and they're miserable. Uh, they're unha- a lot of them are very unhappy and they're bitter. They yeah. feel betrayed. I don't know if you, you hear, if you, if you sense these feelings uh, among, oh, among yeah, your for age sure. group. So, yeah. go ahead. They don't know how to have social relationships or romantic relationships with other people, and they end up getting very bitter about it and very sad, and they don't see a world <laughs> outside of online dating and Tinder. And just the idea that in, in my generation that you could meet someone organically is um, shocking to people, which is so sad. That's such a central part. It, you know, they don't go to church. They don't engage in um, community activities. There's nothing to ground them or give them joy, especially since they don't they don't have a grounding in these great books. Um, something that would make their life more exciting and romantic and mystical and interesting that just doesn't exist for us. It's so true. You know, but, Elizabeth in, in in Gatsby. You know, the first time he kisses Daisy, it's a big mm-hmm. moment, and Fitzgerald describes it. In, in powerful terms, Some, a, a transformation happens inside Gatsby when he kisses her for the first time. Do do you, you say that your age group they don't they don't have that romantic sense? If you're not brought into a a tradition of romance, it's hard, it's hard to create one on your own when you when you've got your own peer group. Love, if we don't have a sentimental conception of love. Love can lead to awful things. I mean, people, you know, this, this is one thing I talk about in, in the book. Mm-hmm. This strange idealism that millennials have. Like, love is love. 
It doesn't matter who you love. I, I, I quote a, a millennial who was leading a bunch of kids in a song with this refrain. It, it just, you can read the book and see how, how this came about. Uh, with a refrain, it doesn't matter who you love. You know, and I think this was, you know, gay, lesbian, whatever. You know, it doesn't matter who you love. But when you just take that statement that she was reiterating, it does matter who you love. What if you love someone awful? Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the, woman, the woman who loves her husband, but, but he beats her up sometimes. The cops come and arrest him. You know, three days later, she drops the charges. Why? Because she loves him. There's something wrong with that love. It does matter who you love. Dido's love for Aeneas, Virgil calls a sickness. It's a form of madness. And then look what she does when he, when he leaves. That's, that, that love has a real dark side that, that can go with the jealousy, that, that can strike you, that can torture people. But then, you know, that, that's being human. <laughs> you know, I'm not, yeah. I, you want to be risk averse? Uh, yeah, then you can avoid all those things, and you'll also avoid the uh, the, the the transcendent moments as well. Yeah. yeah, it seems it's interesting. It seems like lacking those things, something that my generation really does care about, is you know social justice, protesting, being an activist. You know, considering themselves the most race sensitive, gender sensitive, compassionate generation of all time. Um, and so it seems like a lot of their energy is poured into that instead. But like you said, they're not, you know, they're not reading like Aristotle or Plato or Machiavelli or Locke. And they're forming these political and moral judgments about the world. But like, where are they getting these from? Like, what, what kind of moral and political judgments are they forming in the absence of any kind of education? Yeah. Well, let me, let me, uh, here I'll say, I, I did a little piece in Atlanta Magazine uh, a while back. They asked me for, you know, where do I stand now, 10 years after the, this Dumbest Generation book came out. And I, I, my opening paragraph was, Millennials in America today are the most socially conscious, hardworking, knowledgeable, skilled and savvy, globally aware, workforce ready, and downright interesting generation in human history. Just ask them. So, uh, the, 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 the idea there is, yes, uh, a high level of self-regard taking place. And again, they were told this when they were 15. They were told it not only by their friends, you know, who affirmed them on social media all the time, but also by the journalists and intellectuals and, and uh, uh, you know, the, the guys who wrote the book, The Next Greatest Generation, and they meant the millennials. So they, they believed that. Uh, now, where where did they where do they get their commitments, as you put it, the, the social justice mm -hmm. zeal that they have? They get it because they don't have the right commitments, because they don't have strong gods in their lives. I mean, Rusty, our, our boss, Rusty Reno, wrote, you know, the return of the strong gods. By the strong gods, we're talking about God, country family, the deep beliefs that can lead one to self-sacrifice, right? You, you care about something more than you care about yourself, and so you're, you're, you're going to plunge into it. This, this is, I mean, this is the religion. The, the millennials didn't get those things, but they want them, okay? The human heart, the, the, the soul wants 
to have an exteriority draw it out. And it, it, it searches for things that give purpose and, and meaning, these old-fashioned words. They, they stick. They endure. So the 33-year-old wants, wants his life to matter, wants his being to count in the universe in some way. And your little individual life counts when you can enlist it in a bigger life, in a telos, something that has fate and good, the good and the true attached to it. And this is the claim of Black Lives Matter. I mean, these are intensely moral crusades. Black Lives Matter, racial justice, social justice, uh, you know, Antifa, e even in, in extreme cases. These distorted religions are, these distorted idols, are where people go when they don't have the, the true ones, the real ones. Mm -hmm. that have been purveyed to hand it to them. And, you know, what we want to do is to give the young, we want to give them the psalms. You know, we, we, we do the psalms at night in the townhouse there at, at First Things. We, we read a couple of the psalms with Father Bailey uh, when I'm in town, and when, when I lived in the townhouse there for years. Uh, that was, that's a meaningful moment when we come together and the Psalms are right there. Then we have a reading out of one of the Gospels, one of the letters. And these things give you at that moment you know, a, little, a little relief. We're going to step out of the world here a little bit. We're going to, uh, we're going to make an encounter with something profound. And mm -hmm. if they didn't get it, they're going to go somewhere else to find it. Uh, because they're, that, that, that's what a lot of the bitterness is. It, it, it's, these, yeah. are, these are holes in their souls. <laughs> and, and they want to fill that hole. Yeah. You, you shared one anecdote in the book that really struck me. Um, it was when the students were protesting Milo Yiannopoulos coming to Emory. Um, and you asked one student why all the other students were so offended by his presence. And she said, because they think everyone has the right to be happy. Uh, what did she mean by that? And what about that kind of idea is just really missing in my generation and, you know, yeah. the boomers before me? Well, there is no greater good in this millennial outlook than everyone being happy. You be happy. Okay? If you're unhappy, something is wrong with the world. They have no tragic sense of life. No sense that sometimes when you pursue happiness and you get your happiness, it's the worst thing that could happen to you. <laughs> no, 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 mm -hmm. no feel for cosmic irony of that kind. No sense of fallenness. You know, some of our desires for happiness can be disordered and we need the guidance of the Lord, the guidance of the Bible, mm -hmm. to, to hold us off from pursuing our disordered desires. That, that whole idea of fallenness, innate depravity, is abominable 
to the millennial sense of things. No, people should be whatever they want to be. And if, you're a, if you have a, a, a female body and you think you're a man, you're a man, period. And we're not going to have anyone interrupt that. Everyone deserves to be happy. It's not the pursuit of happiness. You have a right to happiness, period. And again, the, the web stuff encouraged this way of thinking. You know, second life, you can build a life in which you're happy. You can become whatever you want to be in the virtual sphere. You can go on Facebook and find your communities, you know, people who, who may be just as unhappy as you, and then you can be happier. You know, I can't remember if it was uh, Mark Zuckerberg or Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, who said, uh, we're trying to make it so you never have to be alone. Well, you know, being alone, loneliness can be tough when you're young. You know, I, I had acute loneliness for years. In, in my 20s, when I was a, a poor, struggling you know, grad <laughs> student living in squalor in, in one-room apartments near the La Brea Tar Pits. And what maturity requires is you learn to be alone. You learn to be lonely. And, and just think how many times, I mean, Jesus has to go off and be alone. I need to get away mm -hmm. from people. The, the time to be alone, that, that's, when you, that's when you can contemplate, right? You settle, mm -hmm. you reorient yourself, you recalibrate. You gotta get out of the social circuit now and then. No, no, I've got my friends. When I'm troubled, I'm not, I don't wanna be alone. I wanna be around my friends. That's where they look for comfort. And, and you wanna say, you know, try, try prayer. Take that option <laughs> instead. I once said in class, look, you guys, you got to turn that TV off. College students watch three hours of TV a day. Now stop it. <laughs> and <the> student, <laughs> she says, if, if I turn off the TV, the silence will kill me. And I said, wow. No, I, I know. I know you feel that way. But, but no, just give it a try. Okay. 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 Learn. You got to learn to be alone because, Elizabeth, people who can't stand to be alone end up making bad decisions. They, mm -hmm. they end up getting involved with the wrong people. They, they engage in the wrong compromises of, of themselves because they're desperate to get out of their loneliness. It's, you're it, you're going to pay for that. Better to open you know, the Sermon on the Mount. Better to read Proverbs than, than to get online and, and to connect. Uh, so the, 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 the online taught the young, right, to, 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 be, to be fractious and, and dissatisfied. Mm -hmm. Well, with that bit of advice, that's all we have time for. But the book is The Dumbest Generation Grows Up, From Stupefied Youth to Dangerous Adults. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.